listening to the AT Tapes, a podcast from the Journal of Athletic Training. The goal of this podcast is to interview researchers and clinicians on current topics facing athletic trainers and discuss how we can utilize best practices to improve patient outcomes. My name is Lizzie Hibbard, and I will be your host for this podcast. I'm a faculty member in the athletic training program at the University of Alabama, and I have a research interest in shoulder and elbow injury prevention in youth overhead athletes. You can follow me on Twitter at EE Hibbard. Before getting started on today's episode, I wanted to remind everyone that all content from JAT is open access, meaning it is free of charge to all readers, thanks to funding from the National Athletic Trainers Association. Today's guest is Dr. Jeff Dreben. Jeff is an associate professor in the Division of Rheumatology at Tufts University School of Medicine and a member of the special and scientific staff at Tufts Medical Center. The goal of his research is to explore novel biochemical and imaging markers to gain a better understanding of osteoarthritis and potential disease subsets. He also aims to raise awareness about osteoarthritis and promote primary and secondary prevention strategies for physically active individuals as a member of the Athletic Trainers Osteoarthritis Consortium and by serving as the National Athletic Trainers Association's representative in the Osteoarthritis Action Alliance. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So before we begin, can you tell us a little bit about your educational background and um, sort of your steps to ending up at Tufts? Sure. So I started off at the University of Delaware getting my bachelor's in athletic training. And then after that, I transitioned up to Temple University, where I did my master's of education and my PhD with uh, Bud Swanick, Mike Sittler, and Mary Barb as my mentors. Then after doing my PhD there, I transitioned up to Tufts Medical Center to the Division of Rheumatology uh, to do my postdoc under Tim McElendon, who is our division chief here, and I've stayed on since then. So how did you get into this area of research and uh, sort of to where you are today? So I started off with um, a master's grant from the NATA Foundation, actually, that supported me to do some work on tissue trauma that was created while people were getting total hip replacements. And a lot of my interest started to develop there by talking to patients with osteoarthritis and seeing their disease burden, but also working in an orthopedic uh, department with uh, Temple Orthopedics and seeing the number of former athletes that had had surgery um, 5, 10, 15 years prior that are coming back with chronic joint pain uh, really raised alarm bells for me and made me more interested in better understanding why some of our athletes are coming back years later with osteoarthritis. And then as you think about your a long time ago when you decided to become an athletic trainer, uh, what, why did you decide to be an athletic trainer and what's kind of kept you in this profession? So I became an athletic trainer partially because, you know, as a high school athlete, I had a lot of injuries myself. And so uh, I had kind of gotten a taste for sports medicine through personal experience. And it was kind of a combination of my interest in medicine as well as sports. Um, And then as I went through my graduate degrees, I got experience working in a clinical setting, which got me interested in working with a broader population of physically active individuals. 
and it's kind of just matured from there. Well, thank you for telling us a little bit about yourself, and uh, we'll get started with the official interview on uh, osteoarthritis today. So before we start pretty much every episode, I think it's important to define terms just to make sure that everyone is sort of speaking the same language. And so can you start out by telling us, um, talk to us a little bit about osteoarthritis and post-traumatic osteoarthritis. Um, And then if there's any other terms or common language you're going to use, you can go ahead and define that now too. Sure. So Osteoarthritis is the most common form of arthritis. So when somebody says arthritis, they're usually referring to osteoarthritis. And it's a chronic joint pain uh, condition. And I like the way that the Osteoarthritis Research Society International approaches the definition, which is to actually separate it into two things. One is the disease. And that's what people commonly think about when they look at x-rays and they see like a bone-on-bone joint where the joint space has been lost, the person is thought to have no more cartilage or the bone has big bone spurs. Um, So it's the structural manifestation. And then on the other end of it is the illness, which is actually what the patient experiences and reports to us. And that can be characterized by morning stiffness or chronic pain. Uh, It can be frequent pain. Um, They may also have functional limitations, such as slowed walking speed or impaired ability to get in and out of chairs or up and down steps. Um, We often talk about post-traumatic osteoarthritis as a subgroup of osteoarthritis. And this is often used to describe anybody who has osteoarthritis, which I'll sometimes refer to as OA, after experiencing a joint injury. Um, I often don't use the term post-traumatic osteoarthritis for two reasons. One is I think a lot of osteoarthritis is actually attributable to an injury. We might not remember the injury or we might not be able to find the injury, but something probably happens. Um, A good example that one of the orthopedics I used to work with used to use is the person who comes off the ladder with a fully extended knee and kind of jams the knee. It felt funny for a little bit. They might not think much about it, but they could have gotten a radial meniscal tear, which would potentially lead to osteoarthritis down the road. The other issue with it is just the fact that it's a little too broad in some ways. I think if we want to start thinking about how do we prevent osteoarthritis after an injury, we need to be more specific about the type of trauma that led to it. So when you think about in our populations in an athletic setting that we work with, what is the prevalence of osteoarthritis um, currently or that we're seeing in in these populations? Uh, Based on a systematic review that we had published in the special issue on osteoarthritis, we estimated that about 1 in 13 athletes will have osteoarthritis after their career has ended. Um, But we did see that certain sports are more likely to be associated with osteoarthritis, specifically um, soccer players, regardless of what level of competition they competed at, but also elite level long distance runners, like marathon runners at the Olympics, um, elite level competitive weightlifters, as well as elite level uh, wrestlers. So it sounds like sport is definitely one of the risk factors uh, for development of OA in this population. But what are some other risk factors that have been identified um, for increasing the chances of getting this or the uh, age of onset of osteoarthritis. Right. So injury is definitely a big part of it. Um, And we need to also consider the type of injury. A person who has a meniscal injury at the time of an ACL injury is actually three and a half times more likely to get OA within the next decade than somebody who just had an isolated ACL sprain. We've also seen 
fairly good data to suggest that the severity of the injury is related to OA risk down the road, as is the repetition of injury. So a person, for example, who repetitively subluxes um, their patella or their shoulder may be at greater risk than a person who's only done it once. Um, the interesting thing, too, is at the hip, we don't see that injury is really a big factor. Instead, things like cam deformities are the main risk factor for developing hip OA. And that's important because we see a lot of cam deformities in some of our young athletes, especially hockey players, um, youth soccer players, and so forth. Um, the other things that are kind of out there is we know that the age when the person experiences an, is, an in, is important. But so is weight gain. I think we often don't think about people gaining weight after an injury, but we know that a good number of people actually experience quite a significant amount of weight gain after their injury. And so it's probably something that athletic trainers, we need to keep an eye on um, to keep sure that they're not increasing other risk factors for osteoarthritis. The other thing that's a little bit of a black box for us is how does our treatment protocols after an injury and our return to play decisions play into somebody developing osteoarthritis. It's despite all the research in the area, we actually know really little about how those factors may contribute, but we do have some data to suggest that people who return to play after an ACL injury with limited range of motion, muscle weakness, diffusion, or knee pain are actually more likely to develop osteoarthritis down the road. And one could question why are some of these people being cleared to play with those um, issues, but obviously they're still making it back to play. So I think we need to take a careful look at return to play decisions as well as how we manage the injuries. Um, so when you think about athletic trainers, you mentioned some of the things relative to weight gain and, and treatment strategies. Um, what do you think, where do you think athletic trainers fit in, in on the prevention and management of osteoarthritis in our, the unique positions that we're in to impart wisdom and guidance on these athletes? So I think first and foremost is primary prevention. And, and what I mean by that is trying to prevent the initial injury in the first place that could be the catalyst for getting OA down the road. Um, you know, we have so many studies and systematic reviews and meta-analyses now that show that our injury prevention programs are effective and that they can reduce 40% or more of the injuries at the lower extremity. And we're starting to see upper extremity prevention programs that are similarly successful, but yet they're rarely used in our athletic settings. So I think athletic trainers need to become advocates for disseminating and implementing these injury prevention programs because the best thing we can do for some of these kids is prevent the injury in the first place. Then obviously we have the question about what do you do once you have the injury? Because we're not going to prevent all of them. And I think we need to start thinking more about return to play, not just in the fastest way, but also the safest for the long-term wellness of our patients. And I think as part of that, we need to be, um, educating our patients about their potential risk for osteoarthritis, as well as some of the risk factors. Like you said, there's a lot of things that go into potentially developing OA. And we need to ensure that our patients understand the importance of being physically active, having a healthy lifestyle, maintaining a healthy body weight after their injury and after their career. We have data that shows that after a person finishes their collegiate athletic career, a lot of them fail to meet the ACSM exercise guidelines. 
that's just not an acceptable route for these patients. We need to be doing a better job promoting their long-term wellness after their athletic career so that they don't start developing some of the other risk factors for osteoarthritis, such as weight gain. Um, I think we also need to teach our athletes when to re-engage with the healthcare system. Um, one of the things I often talk about is when I see somebody who's had an ACL injury two to five years uh, before I talk to them, they often say, oh, my knee's doing great, but it swells up when I run. Or, you know, it hurts me periodically, but that's just the way it is now. They have this idea that this is an acceptable outcome for them. And I think we need to teach them that that's not okay. And that when you are experiencing symptoms, being physically active, it's time to notify whoever your healthcare professional is at that moment so that we can try and correct their course and try and get them back into rehab if that's needed or get them the analgesics that they may be needed to remain physically active, but also maintain a healthy joint throughout. So I'm going to go back to uh, you talking about talking with our patients about their risk of osteoarthritis and um, kind of what that looks like in their life. Can you give us some tips on how and when you have that conversation? You know, I think with saying that, I'm like, oh, do you, do you just tell a kid they tore their ACL, they're having surgery, and now you tell them oh, you're going to have osteoarthritis and hurt for the rest of your life? Yeah, I think this is probably the most common question you get is how do you approach an 18-year-old about something that they're going to be affected by five, 10 years down the road? when they're barely worried about what's happening next week. Um, and I've had a lot of great conversations with Mark Larson and the staff at Boston University about this question, and we've been playing with it for a while. And I think one of the things that we've come up with is to restructure this conversation about their short-term goal. Um, so a lot of the things that will help keep them active after an injury and keep them in competition are also the things that are probably going to set them up well in the long term. So I think part of it is you have the patient who is injured and our goal is to maintain, to protect that joint at all costs. And I think we need to frame it as, you know, you've just completed six to 12 months of rehab. The last thing you want is to have another ACL injury next season and be out again. Or the last thing that you want is to have an impaired function and not be able to perform the way you used to. And so if I think we start structuring some of our conversations around the short-term goals, we can actually achieve some of our long-term goals. But I do think that as a whole, we need to be talking to our athletes more about what their career life is going to look like after their career. Some of that is going to come through athletic trainers, but some of it needs to be a bigger conversation within our athletic departments about how do we prepare our athletes to, be, to have good wellness throughout their life. So can you talk to us a little bit about the consequences of osteoarthritis, the financial burden on society, but also on, on the individual and the ways that it impacts uh, their quality of life? Yeah, so osteoarthritis on a societal level is extremely expensive, particularly because it's the leading cause for knee replacements and joint replacements in general. It's also one of the leading causes for absenteeism, and it's one of the top um, leading causes in the United States and worldwide for years lived with disability. Um, at a personal level, you're talking about a patient who's going to be experiencing chronic pain and functional limitations. So let's step back a second and think about a specific person. Let's say you have an 18-year-old who tears her ACL and meniscus. We know from the data that she's probably got a one in three chance of developing osteoarthritis on x-rays at least, within the next decade. 
So by the time she's 28, she's probably already showing changes in her joint, and that's going to set her up for developing chronic symptoms and functional limitations in her early 30s, maybe mid-30s. So think about what the implication of having functional limitations and chronic pain is in a person's 30s when they're probably getting active in their career, they're probably starting to have uh, or have active children or uh, starting to think about families. So it really will impact their quality of life. And in fact, we've seen data to suggest that among young people with osteoarthritis, they're four times more likely to report being psychologically distressed than their peers. Two out of three of those patients are going to report disability relate at work. And it's going to contribute to a 40% reduction in their quality of life. Now, consider the fact that that's a 30 or 40-year-old, and they probably still have another 50, 60 years to live with that chronic joint symptom. So one of the things that's really struck me so far in this conversation is how much data there is out there relative to osteoarthritis and the need for primary prevention and then these other levels of secondary and tertiary prevention, but then thinking about how much of it is not being used. We have all this data, but it doesn't seem like it's maybe changing clinical practice as much or as quickly as uh, it should to help our patients. So where do you think the bear or what are the barriers in implementing some of these prevention programs or prevention strategies? And then how do we leverage our positions and this data in discussions with patients and coaches and athletic directors? So I think it's different depending if we're talking about primary or secondary prevention. And what I mean by that is I think it's different when we talk about the barriers to implementing injury prevention programs versus what do we do after the person has had an injury. For injury prevention barriers, I think a lot of people have this mentality that the um, warm-ups will take too long. It might fatigue their uh, players before a game or practice. Um, that it requires too much training or resources to implement the programs. And I think we have a good model now that that's really not the case, that injury prevention programs can be fairly flexible. And a lot of coaches, if you think about it, are probably pretty close to having an injury prevention warm-up program. They might just be missing a component or two. So I think as athletic trainers, we need to have conversations with our coaches about what are you doing and how close are we to already achieving our goals of having an effective injury prevention warm-up program? We've also seen recent evidence with the 11 plus program that it might not all need to be done at the same time. And what I mean by that is there's evidence now to suggest that the strengthening component of the 11 plus program can be done after practice and still lead to a reduction in injuries. So, it might not even all need to be done on the sideline or as part of warm-up. So I think we need to work with our coaches to develop a strategy that works for that coach and that team. Then the question is, what's the barrier to secondary prevention? Um, what do we do after an injury? And I think part of it is we work in a setting where everybody's focused on the here and now and what, how do we get back our people to play safely or return to play as soon as possible. And I think... We have an environment where the coaches are pushing this, the athlete is pushing for this, where the patient is pushing for this. The, um, so there's this really centric view of here and now. And so I think athletic trainers need to become the patient's advocate for not just today, but also tomorrow. And we need to be the one that says, you know, I can, if we clear this person to return today, 
they may be at risk for having suboptimal outcomes and they might not be, uh, they may be more likely to get an injury next year or they might have impaired performance. Why don't we take a little bit longer to achieve the goals we want? I think too, we see that um, knowledge about osteoarthritis tends to be a little bit more common among um, our older clinicians. And I think part of that is because they've had the opportunity to have patients come back to um, see them and to tell them about their chronic pain experiences. And I think that really uh, triggers a thought for them about what do I do to prevent this in the future? At uh, NATA this past year, Mark Larson gave a really good talk about how he regrets some of the decisions he had made when his patients have come back to talk to him. So I think our young investigators, our young clinicians, um, we need to try and instill some of that knowledge and experience from our older clinicians to our younger clinicians so that they also appreciate the need for us to be thinking long-term. So what is next? What do we still need to know? You know, there's a lot of um, data on, on stuff. You've already identified a few places where there's some missing information, but um, what do you think some really strategic priorities are relative to osteoarthritis to improve patient outcomes? So I think from a primary prevention point of view, we need to work on our disseminant and implementation research. And I think that's being driven in the United States by a lot of people, including AT researchers like um, Dr. Lindsay DeStefano at University of Connecticut. But I think we also need to be focused on what do we do for the patient after an injury? How do we optimize their recovery in order to preserve their wellness in the long term? And there's an even broader group of ATs that are working in this area um, thinking about how does our return to play decisions potentially affect outcomes? How does our acute rehabilitation program affect it? But also, what do we do for the people who are in this weird time frame, right, where they may have been cleared to return to play, but they haven't developed osteoarthritis and they've kind of fallen to the cracks? We know about one in three patients after an ACL reconstruction often report that they're not satisfied with their um, symptoms, and some of them are even considering their joint as their treatment as a failure. So what do we do for those patients? They don't have osteoarthritis yet. They don't have an acute injury, but they're obviously falling and not doing okay. And we know, suspect that they're probably on a bad path. So I think we really need to understand what's the interventions that we do for those people um, to potentially correct their course or at least delay their onset of symptomatic OA. Well, I'm looking forward to all of that work coming out soon uh, and hopefully being able to implement some of that because it is, a, you know, you've talked about the consequences of it on a societal level, but on a personal level. And when you hear people's stories of how it's impacting their day to day, you really do want to try and find answers. So, so aside from your academic work, um, you're involved in a lot of groups um, related to advancing the profession and the knowledge base relative to osteoarthritis and sports medicine knowledge in general. So I want to talk to you about two of those groups specifically, and then I'll also give you an opportunity to talk about some of the other groups that you're a part of. Um, but I want to start by talking about the Athletic Trainers Osteoarthritis Consortium. Um, and if you'll talk specifically about your role in this group and the purpose of the group and some of the strategic goals. Sure. So the Athletic Trainers Osteoarthritis Consortium is a group of clinicians that are in sports medicine that are interested in advocating and raising awareness about osteoarthritis. And the group is primarily researchers, although we also have some clinicians. Um, we also have 
while it's mostly athletic trainers, it does include some physical therapists as well that are interested in this area. And the group does a bunch of different things. Some of it is to foster collaboration among the researchers and to kind of create a central group where we can communicate with one another, share ideas, and hopefully make connections to foster collaborations. And it's really built on the idea when we first started the group of we're stronger together, that rather than competing with one another to on, in this research area, we could um, really advance the field by coming together as a common resource and pulling our resources and connecting people who may have different skill sets to work together. But the other thing that our consortium really works well uh, hard on is trying to deliver content to the sports medicine community and more specifically the athletic training community about raising awareness of osteoarthritis and why we need to be thinking long-term about our patients' wellness. And this includes developing district workshop series. Uh, it includes webinars online. We've been doing clinician interviews where we ask clinicians to explain why they're concerned about osteoarthritis in their patients. So it's a diverse group and it has a consensus statement that was published in the Journal of Athletic Training a few years ago in the special issue on osteoarthritis that addressed kind of the athletic trainer's role in osteoarthritis in preventing it and managing it. And also just as a note for everyone listening that the links to all of the groups that um, Jeff is going to talk about are included in the show notes. So if you want some of those resources that he's um, been talking about, you can uh, go to those links. So in addition to the Athletic Trainers Osteoarthritis Consortium, you also spend a significant amount of time um, as, with the Sports Med Res. Um, you are co-founder of this. And so can you tell us a little bit about why you started this platform and what type of information you share? Sure. So we started sports medicine research um, back in 2011 because we, I was overhearing people talking about the fact that they were no longer reading the journals because they felt like the articles weren't relevant to them. And I found that kind of alarming because if we're publishing our papers and nobody reads them, what are they doing? And so one of the thoughts uh, Steve Thomas and I had was perhaps we can try and really hit home the clinical take-home message of some of these studies. And at the time, the two of us were also working a little bit in basic science, so we also wanted to keep sure people understood why basic science studies are relevant to clinicians. And so over the years, we've developed it where about two to three posts per week, what we do is we've identified um, some key articles that we think are emerging in sports medicine, and we provide a one-paragraph synopsis of what was done and why, and then kind of our viewpoints on the study just and we always keep sure it ends with a clinical take-home message of what can you do to, tonight with that, this new knowledge. Since starting the site, uh, we've added podcasts because we had people that said they were too busy to read two paragraphs. And so we said, okay, we'll make it so that you can read it on your drive out to the field. And more recently, we've started to develop webinars as well. And we also work with Human Kinetics to have some continuing education courses. Well, it's definitely a great resource, and I enjoy reading it. Um, it does save some time, but uh, it's also really helpful, um, good summaries of the information. And then I know that you're a part of a lot of other groups because this is obviously something that you're really passionate about and passionate about improving patient outcomes. So I want to give you a chance to talk about any other group or groups that you're a part of um, that are specific to um, improving patient outcomes. 
Sure. So one of the organizations that I think is worth mentioning is one that I've just mentioned earlier was the Osteoarthritis Action Alliance. And the Osteoarthritis Action Alliance is a organization or alliance of multiple uh, healthcare organizations that include professional organizations like the National Athletic Trainers Association, but also patient advocacy groups. Um, and it represents a pretty wide array of organizations um, that contribute to promoting the public health agenda for osteoarthritis, which is really centered on um, educating patients about self-management, um, ma- educating healthcare professionals. It's also focused on implementing and uh, raising awareness about injury prevention, uh, weight management, and kind of putting pushing forward the public health agenda that was drafted in 2010. And this group um, that the NATA is part of has a very strong emphasis on OA prevention. And to our listeners, I think what they may be interested in is work in two specific areas. One is weight management and how do we um, educate healthcare professionals as well as our patients about managing their weight appropriately to prevent the onset of OA. And then the other is our injury prevention work. And from the injury prevention point of view, the OA Action Alliance has published a consensus statement among its members about um, what are the key components to an injury prevention program, but also, they are now in the process of developing a toolkit, which we hope will roll out this fall, that will help coaches pick up on the key aspects of an injury prevention program that are needed to have a successful injury prevention program. And those have also been coincided with infographics as well as webinars. Well, thank you for mentioning that. And thank you for the work that you do serving the profession, because I know it's sometimes a, a thankless role, but um, it's really important and really important on some of these committees where athletic trainers typically haven't sat before um, giving athletic trainers a voice. So thank you for your, uh, your service there. So as we finish up this episode, um, I always like to go back and uh, ask the the guests to provide a take-home message on how this information that we discussed today could be used to improve patient outcomes or, you know, using a line from your blog of how could someone use this information tonight? Yeah, so I think one of the most important things is when you see your next patient um, and you're thinking about your treatment strategy, don't just think about what's going to help them today and tomorrow. Think about uh, their long-term wellness. You know, we work in a setting where our patient and most of the people around them are focused on today and short-term benefits. So we need to be the advocates that are thinking long-term. And that involves us thinking about our decisions that we make and being uh, appropriate and trying to preserve their long-term wellness, but also taking a moment to teach our patients how to be active and lead a healthy lifestyle after their athletic career. Well, I really appreciate you joining us today and sharing your knowledge um, and really want to thank you for the work that you're doing to improve our profession and patient care. Thanks for having me. I hope you found this podcast informative and that you can utilize the clinical recommendations to improve patient care. That's it for today's The AT Tapes. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please follow the Journal of Athletic Training on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at JAT underscore NATA on all three platforms. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join us for next month's episode of the AT Tapes.
Thank you.